Uh, churches are like an organism. They, they tend to grow. They tend to have a life cycle. They can get sick. They can become diseased. They can die. Uh, and what most churches go through in their lifetime is they go from a period of mission where they're, they're trying to spread the gospel. They're reaching other people. They're reaching out to the community. They're going, 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 and growing. They go from a time of mission to a time of maintenance. The initial growth that the believers had that were there at the beginning begins to fade. The initial uh, excitement begins to fade as new people come in. Because these new people, these new believers, these new additions to this organism, they weren't there at the beginning. So they didn't get the excitement. They didn't catch the spirit or were, didn't bring it, weren't brought into the spirit that birthed the church in the first place. And there are churches all over the world, including ours, where there are a lot of people who are sitting on the sidelines assuming someone else is taking care of things. And then what typically happens to a church after several years, or sometimes several years, sometimes not very long at all, is they become inward focused. They get to a point where they get comfortable with the people they have. They've reached a, a, a number that they think is sustainable and, and, and they can be proud of. And then they become inward focused. And instead of looking outward to how they can help the community or share the gospel or build the kingdom of God, they start looking inward to see what the church can do for them. And the church was never meant to be an inward focused organism. See, the church isn't about us. The church is about reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the pastor, it's, it's my desire and it's my drive to make sure that we here at New Grace, we never get to the point where we become comfortable and inward focused on what the church can do for us. I want to be a, a church that's always looking outward to what we can do and what, how we can build the kingdom of God and spread the gospel. You know, three years ago, this coming August, we began meeting as a congregation. And we, we said that our desire as a group of believers is to love God, love others, and serve others. And we say we're committed to do whatever it takes to reach the lost with the gospel and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I still want that be our desire. I still want that to be our focus as we continue to grow and do things for God. And is our focus more outward or are we more concerned with what the church can do for us? Are we more concerned with our comfort and doing things the way they've always been done or are we more concerned with reaching out for, with our community to our community for Christ? And this morning, we're going to begin a new study through the book of Colossians called Above All. Because the church at Colossae had a similar issue in their church, where that a lot of churches face, where they began to grow, but then they became, began to become inward focused and start focusing on different things and comfort levels. And so Paul is writing to them. And the entire point of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae is that the church and the things we do for God and life in general is not about them. It's all about Christ. As a church body, as an individual, 
Jesus has done more for us than we could ever imagine or could ever thank him for. But it still isn't about us. Everything, according to Paul, is about Christ. It's about his kingdom. But before we get into the message, I want to lay the foundation and tell you a few things about Paul and this letter to the church at Colossae. This letter was written during one of Paul's imprisonments. Paul was in prison several times throughout his ministry for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. He was in prison by Rome. He was in prison by the Jewish leaders. And so several times he faced beatings and, and he was persecuted and he was arrested several times. And he is writing during one of his imprisonments to the church at Colossae. So he is writing not only during, during uh, his time in prison, but he's writing to a group of believers that he has never met. Paul never went to Colossae. He never met these believers. This, this church was planted by Epaphras, who was one of Paul's friends, and he had told Paul about the church and had told Paul some things that were concerning that were going on in the church. And this, this letter is pretty, a pretty straightforward letter from Paul. Paul, he addresses his concern that they were allowing the culture of the day to influence them too much in the church. He was concerned about their acceptance of the culture that they lived in, and it was, it was warping their understanding of God. He also had some, uh, he addresses some things that believers at Colossae had concerns about him. They were wondering if, if Paul's the messenger of God, if he's God's messenger to get the gospel to the world right now, and if he's a man of God, then why is he always in jail? Why is he always being persecuted? Why is he always in trouble? If, if he's being used of God, why is God allowing these things to happen to him? So he, he writes this letter to kind of correct their view of God and explain why he was willing to, to suffer and to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, and why they should be willing to do it as well. See, Colossae was a, a fascinating city. It was a very prosperous city. It was located in a, in a valley in what is modern-day Turkey. It was part of the Roman Empire, and surprisingly, the Roman Empire had religious freedom with a catch. You could worship any gods you wanted to worship, any way you wanted to worship them, you just couldn't say that your God was the only God. Because if you said your God was the only God, you're going to upset somebody else, and it's not politically correct. And you could upset them, and that could cause strife in the area. And so Rome said, worship anybody you want to, but don't say your God's the only God, because it causes cause trouble between somebody else. Plus, if you think your God's the only God, you may think that you deserve to be in charge, and Rome is the only people who are allowed to be in charge. And so Colossae, it was filled with temples and shrines to all kinds of gods. And, and people felt that they could choose whatever God best suited them. In fact, most of the people of the area, they had kind of a buffet style to picking their God. They would find this God. This God, they like what he said about, about their relationships. This God had pretty cool temples. This God didn't offer human sacrifices, and we like that, so we'll go there. This God did this, and so they would pick and choose different aspects of different gods that they liked, and they would use that to kind of make up how they believe, what they believed about God. 
And this idea had began to creep into the church at Colossae. See, believers in the church at Colossae, they had a lot of different rituals that they had added to their faith. They, they were beginning to have a Jesus and mentality. We worship Jesus and we embrace these other things from these other beliefs that kind of fill in the, the blank spots where we don't think Jesus is, is doing enough for us there. They, they never rejected Christ. They simply added to him. And this is what Paul says in response to this practice in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. <clears throat> the Bible says, Who is the image of the invisible God? the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, but by, by him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul is explaining uh, that since everything, he's explaining to these, these Colossae, that since everything was created by God and by Jesus, that he is, that Jesus is God. He's not just a God, he is the God. See, God is the only uncreated thing. This is his logic. God's the only thing that's never been created. And since Jesus created everything, that means Jesus wasn't created. That means that Jesus is God. Colossians 1 is kind of paralleling Genesis 1 and, and uh, John 1, where you know, in Genesis 1, he is the, the creating force that we see in Genesis, and in John 1, he's the word that John speaks of. But now a lot of people would point to this word in verse 15, the word firstborn, as evidence that Jesus was created. I'll read it to you again. It says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So they say, well, that says Jesus is firstborn. That means he's a created being. Like Parker is our firstborn. He is the first human that me and April ever made together. In 2001, he didn't exist. In 2002, he did exist. So he was the firstborn of us. But in this, the New Testament here, the, the word firstborn is the Greek word protos. It's where we get our word prototype. It means, first in position, a model to follow. Jesus, what Paul is saying here, Jesus is the prototype of all creation. He is the template that everything was created from. That's why Genesis says that we are created in the image of God. He was the template to use to create all of creation, including us. And then in verse 18, again, it says he's the firstborn from the dead. Again, he is the model that we are to follow in the resurrection because before Jesus, people had been risen from the dead. We had people in the Old Testament risen from the dead, people in the New Testament before Christ were risen from the dead. But when those people rose from the dead, they all had to die again. 
You know, Lazarus is a great story, but I always feel bad for Lazarus. Because, I mean, he died because he was sick. So he, and he probably suffered a great deal. You know, in this time, you get a, a, you get a hangnail, you're dead, because you don't have antibiotics and infection sets in. And you get, it's just a very bad thing to do, and it's very painful. And so Lazarus, he goes through this sickness. He's so sick, he's, he's going to die, and he, he suffers, and he dies. But he's, he's, his suffering's over. He's not in heaven yet because Jesus hasn't died yet. He's in Abraham's bosom, but he's not suffering anymore. And then he has to raise it from the dead. And now he's going to die again. And I always feel bad. He's got to die a second time. I'm like, everybody who was resurrected before Christ, when they resurrected, they died again. But Jesus never will die. Jesus didn't die and ascend to heaven as a spirit. Jesus is alive today, sitting at the right hand of God. And so he is the resurrection. Meaning, when we are resurrected on that glorious day, we will never again have to face death. Death has no victory over us. Death has no sting over us. Why? Because Jesus is the model that we are going to follow. Muslims, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they all teach that Jesus is a great man. Some of them even teach that he's an angel created by God. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe he is God's first creation. And he's an angel sent from heaven. But they get upset and they disagree with you when you tell them that Jesus is God. Why is that so disturbing to them? Why does it bother them so much to, to realize and admit that Jesus is God? Because if Jesus is a created being then you can look at him as a dispenser of truth and moral good. You can, you can put him alongside other teachers and say he was a good teacher, a good man, just like so-and-so. But if he's God, then that changes everything. Because if he's God, he's the center of everything, and everything else is measured by him. And so Paul is telling us that we were created by God, by Jesus, who is God, and we were created for Jesus. We were not created for ourselves. We were created for him, not for us. You weren't created for a job. You weren't created for your spouse or your kids. You were created for God. That means the primary purpose is to know Him, to discover His will, and to live it out. And that's the only way that we as believers will find true fulfillment by following and living our lives for God. In verse 17, Paul says, and by Him all things consist. That, that word consist there is the Greek word that means to hold together. Several years ago, I read an article about how physicists are still uh, confused as to how atoms stay together. Now, atoms, of course, are the, the, the molecules that make up everything. Atoms make up everything, and they're confused as, at how they hold themselves together because the atoms, the center of the atoms, contains positively charged protons, and positively charged protons repel each other. But they don't. They stick together. And they say they have no idea how they stick together. There's, there's some force they can't explain. They don't say it's God. But there's like there's some force that we can't explain, we haven't discovered yet, that holds these atoms together. 
That thing, of course, is God. It's Jesus. Jesus holds everything together. He keeps everything in place. He makes sure that everything runs as it's supposed to run in the universe. He created everything and he sustains everything. So Paul is teaching us some important lessons that we need to understand. Here's the first one. Jesus is first. Jesus is the creator of everything. He's the template on which everything was made, and he is the one that everything was made for. The point is not that Jesus is one of God's beautiful creations, but he is the creating force, and he is the purpose behind everything. Jesus is first in everything. I think Paul wants to remind us that secondly, Jesus went first. This God that created everything, pursued a relationship with us when we weren't even looking for him. He went to the cross. He endured the worst torment and torture and humiliation that has ever been all to purchase us back from sin and death and hell. And he did it willingly. And he could have wiped the slate clean with Adam and Eve. When, they, when Adam and Eve fell, God could have said, well, let me try again. Start all over. He could have just said, forget it, y'all are done. I don't even care about humanity anymore. He could have started over, but he didn't. He pursued you. He came for you. He came for me. He came for everyone. Jesus went first. He, he sought you when you were a stranger. He came for you when you were an enemy of God. So since Jesus is first and Jesus went first, that means thirdly that we should put Jesus first. Because he is first, because he went first, we should put him first in our lives. You know, Jesus isn't meant to be one of many gods. He's not meant to be a top priority in your life. He is meant to be the priority of your life. Paul says that in all things he might have the preeminence. See, Jesus isn't just a priority. Jesus is what all other priorities should be based on. That's the problem with, with church that churches face throughout their lifetime. Eventually it comes down to a problem of first generation and second generation members. The first generation, they do whatever it takes to share the gospel, and the second generation does only what they're asked to do. First generation assumes personal responsibility for the work, while second generation assumes someone else is responsible. First generation expects personal sacrifice, while second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation steps out with bold trust in God, while Second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. And the thing is, you can go from a first generation to a second generation in your lifetime. You can start out excited for God, ready for God, passionate to see things happen, ready to work for God, but then you can grow comfortable because you've done your job. You've done your part. Now it's someone else's turn. And a church can go from a first-generation church filled with people who are willing to serve God and give anything for God and give it all up to do whatever God asks them to do to a group of believers that says, well, let's just, 
let's just keep everything in status quo. Let's not ruffle any feathers. Let's make sure we're, we're taken care of and we're comfortable. And if someone comes in, great, but we're not going to go seeking them. I've seen it happen in too many churches. We see in the life of Israel, you know, after Moses died, Joshua took over. And he, with the generation that was with him, the generation that wandered in the, in the, in the desert with their parents, he, he took that generation and he crossed the, the, the Jordan River and he conquered the promised land. He saw the, this generation with Joshua, they saw miracles of God. They saw God bring down walls of Jericho. They saw God conquer armies that they shouldn't have been able to conquer. They saw God do incredible things in their life, but then something happened. Joshua and his generation died, and the next generation grew comfortable. The Bible says in Judges 2.10, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So as a church, we need to fight to make sure we don't become a second-generation church that grows comfortable that what, with what we can do for ourselves and protecting ourselves. We need to continue to fight to want to be a first generation and keep the passion and the vision that God has given us. And there, there are going to be new families to reach. There are going to be new people to preach the gospel to, new nations to impact, new opportunities to share the gospel in our community. And the way to keep the faith, the way to keep the passion is to keep Jesus in his rightful place in our lives and in our church. So the question we need to answer for ourselves today is this. Does Jesus hold first place in our life, or is he just a priority? In other words, is Jesus important to you, or is Jesus first? To help us figure that out, I want to ask a couple questions. Here's the first question. What gets your first and best? What gets your first and best? Saying what? In everything. Paul tells us that we should put Jesus at the first place in everything. Again, he says that in all things, all things, he might have the preeminence. See, Paul didn't say in some things, in the important things, in the meaningful things. He said in all things, Christ deserves to be preeminent. He deserves to be first. He should have the first place in your heart. He should have the first place in your affections. He should have the first place in your mind. He should have the first place in everything and every aspect of your life. He is the one. He needs to be the one that you love the most, more, more than anything else. And look, I know most of us would say as believers, yes, Christ is number one in my, in my heart. I love him more than I love anything else or anyone else. But does our life prove it? Does our life back up what we say? Well, how can we tell? Well, first of all, he should be first in your obedience. What he wants should be the first consideration in everything that you do. Whatever job you want to take, whoever you want to date, whatever school you want to go to, whatever major decision you want to make in your life, your first consideration should be, what does God want me to do? Does God want me to move across country to get a better paying job? If there's, you know, maybe there's not a church over there, so you need to ask yourself, what does God want me to do? 
what does God want me to do in this situation? It should be filtered through what He wants, not through what you want. So He should be first in your obedience. Secondly, He should be first in your priorities. His agenda to get the gospel to the entire world should rule your life. Look, Jesus did not come to earth, live a perfect life, die on the cross in your place, and rise again three days later just so we could keep it quiet. He doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves. He wants us to share the gospel with everyone we can. He did not, he did it to save all of humanity and he wants his children to spread the gospel. So is he first in your time? Do you spend more time teaching your kids how to keep a clean room than you do teaching them about Jesus? Do you spend more time trying to get your hobbies or your chores taken care of than you do spending time with Jesus? Do you spend more time worrying about how to get ahead at work than you do pursuing Jesus? Does, does he have first priority in your weekly commitments? Do you schedule your life around worshiping at church, going to growth groups, doing ministry, or is it the other way around? Well, I can't go to church this week because i got other things I've scheduled. I can't make it to growth group because I've got other things planned. I can't do this because I have other things. We're supposed to put him first in our priorities. Does he get priority in everything? Is he first in your talents? Look, when you think about your talents that he gave you for your career, do you think about the kingdom of God at all? Do you think, how can I use these to build his kingdom? Look, God gave you your talents for a purpose. Your workplace is not just a place to earn a living. It's a mission field. It's a place for you to share the gospel and show people the love of Jesus Christ. You should use your job as a means to bring the gospel to people and use the financial benefits for his kingdom first, not for yours. That brings us to the third thing. Is, is he first in your treasure? Jesus says that where your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, we don't like talking about money, but we're going to for a while because they talk about it in Colossians quite a bit. So for the next several weeks, I'm going to be bringing it up. That makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. But that Jesus talked about money more than anything else, even heaven, so we got to talk about it. Because how we handle your money shows your heart for God. So who gets the first and best of your treasure? Look, we all have two categories that we spend our money in. Most important and least important. And look, we put things like food, shelter, clothing, automobiles, we put those in the most important category. And they are important. You need a place to, to sleep. You need a roof over your head. You need food to eat. You need clothes on your body. You need a car to go back and forth. And, and those are fine. Those are top priority. Those are most important. But then we've, we also put things like entertainment, travel, leisure in there. And then somehow God always gets moved to the least important. When we get done everything we want to get done, whatever we got left over, we'll see if we can give any to God. And look, when we look at our finances for our personal life, if we want to do something, we want to buy a nicer car, we want to buy a bigger house, we want to get safe college for the kids, we tend to look at our finances and say, okay, if we cut this, this, and this, we can, we can accomplish this goal. And that's great. You should. There's nothing wrong with putting some things first in your finances for yourself and your family. But how come when we look at God's giving to God's kingdom, we never say, 
if we, if we cut some things here or we tighten up here, we could give more to the kingdom of God. We could give more to, to his, for his honor and for his glory. Instead, we say, how much can we afford to give after we meet all these other commitments and fulfill all these other wants? After we get the house we want. After we take the vacation we want. After we drive the car we want. After we wear the clothes we want. After we get the phone we want. After we achieve the lifestyle that we want to achieve, then we'll see what we're comfortable giving to God. And look, I've been guilty of it as well. When you give to God what's left instead of what's first, you are not putting Him first. You know, God doesn't deserve our leftovers. He deserves to be first and best in everything in every area of your life. How would you feel if I invited you over to my house for dinner? Say, hey, I want you to come over for Friday night. We're gonna, we, want you, we, we want to host you and your family for dinner. We're gonna, we just want to honor you. We just want to spend some time with you. And you come over and you find out it's leftover night. I didn't cook anything new. I'm just pulling stuff out of the fridge. Say, we can heat up these mashed potatoes. Uh, I think this pork chop's not too bad. You know, I think we got some spaghetti in there somewhere. You know, I didn't cook for you. I'm just giving you what's left. None of you would be, feel very honored, would you? Wouldn't feel very impressed because I didn't cook the meal for you. No one cooked it for you. It's just, hey, we didn't eat this. I guess you can have it. None of us would like that, but that's what we do with God with our finances. God, I've done everything I want to do, and here's, here's some left, so you can have it. You know, God deserves the best of everything. You know, and what I'm saying here, it's, I'm not preaching just to you. While I was preparing this message and God convicted me about my giving. Now, me and April, we, we give faithfully. We give, we give our tithes and offerings like we should. But God started speaking in my heart and saying, yeah, you, you give what you're supposed to. You give what, you know, you ought to. But is it your first and your best? Are you, am I guilty of saying, okay, God, here's the minimum I got to give you. Now let me take the rest. And so April doesn't know this. She's in the nursery listening to it now. But we're going to have a talk and say, hey, what, what can we give up for God? What can we put off so we can be better stewards of not just God's money, but we can show through our treasure that God is the first and best in our hearts. Does your giving say that God gets your first or you get your leftovers? So here's what I challenge all of us to do. We need to pray about what we give to the Lord. And look, I know some of you have never given or you don't give regularly or not faithfully, and you need a place to start. And so, especially new believers, I've always felt, you know, some preachers like, no matter who you are, you just get saved, you immediately start giving 10% of your income to God. Look, if you get saved yesterday and then come to church today and I say, hey, I know you're living paycheck to paycheck, but 10% comes to the church, you're going to have a hard time with that. And I understand that. But you've got to start somewhere. And I believe God will tell you where to start. So I believe all of us should pray and say, God, am I, am I proving with my finances that you're the first and best in my life? And if God gives you a number to say, hey, use this to prove God, then whatever God does, lay on your heart, vow to give it to him first. And look, I fought me and April, we've, 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 we've messed up before where we don't give our, we get paid and we don't tithe right away. Like, oh, we'll, we'll tithe later. You know, we got, we got bill, you know, we got to write this checks so and we got to pay these bills. And, you know, we get paid on, on Monday. And then, you know, by Sunday, it's like, oh, 
oops, we spent all of our money on other things. And you know, some of it was necessary, gas, groceries, bills, but man, we sure went to McDonald's a whole lot. We sure went to Dunkin' Donuts a few too many times and went out to eat, and now, uh-oh, we don't have anything for God. So we've made it a habit that when we get paid, our first thing we do is we, we take our tithe out, or I, I usually send it through the Internet. That's the first thing that comes out, because I know if I leave it in there and I'll give it Sunday, I won't give it Sunday. And maybe that's what some of you need to start. Say, you know what, I'm going to do it first. Instead of when I get a chance, the first thing I'm going to do is write that check, take that cash out and stick it in an envelope, do whatever you got to do to make sure that God gets the first and best of every aspect in your life. So here's the second question we have to ask. Am I listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying Him? In the book of Acts, the church was, was growing at explosive levels. You know, a lot of people, a lot of theologians have had to try to figure out what the secret of the first church was and how they grew so rapidly and grew so fast and had such influence. And a lot of people have tried to write books about how we can emulate that or how we can follow the model that they had. But they, they did an incredible work for God. They got the gospel to the entire known world in a hostile culture with no technology whatsoever. And I'll tell you how they did it. They were a group of people who listened to and obeyed the Holy Spirit. 59 times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit shows up. And every time the believers hear the Holy Spirit, obey the Holy Spirit, and incredible things happen for God's glory. Their acts of obedience allowed God to accomplish more than he could ever do with technology and talent with people who aren't willing to obey God. Surrender and obedience characterized the first group of believers, and they were able to accomplish incredible things for God. And that's, that's what I want our church to be characterized by. A group of believers seeking God, hearing God, and obeying God. And if we do that, if we honestly, with an open heart, seek God, we hear God, and obey God, then He will become first in every aspect of our lives. We will become a group of believers who continue to be outward-focused instead of inward-focused. You know, I don't want our church to become a second-generation church more concerned with ourselves and our comfort than we are with the kingdom of God. Jesus is first in everything. He went first to redeem us, and we should put him first in everything. So this morning, as Ms. Street comes to the piano, I want to ask you a question for us all to consider. What gets the first and best of your life? Not just one area of your life. Maybe you have your finances first and best with God, and you've got that down pat, and you are doing what you're supposed to do, and you are just honoring God and everything, but he, he doesn't get first and best in your time or your pursuits or your, or your whatever it is. Does God get the first and best in everything that we do? If it's not Jesus, then we need to decide to put him first in everything. As Mr. begins to play, let's all stand together this morning.